So if you'll grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, in, in, in previous years, we looked at the life of David. It actually took us a while. Solomon's narrative is significantly shorter. Uh, it's really just a few chapters, even though he's, he's, a, he's a major figure. Uh, just a few chapters. And um, it starts, his story really starts rather unusually. Now, we've already been introduced to him in the text, born through the union of David and Bathsheba. Uh, the second child of David and Bathsheba. But his story, particularly his reign, really begins here. David has just died. Solomon has been crowned king. We want to start in, in verse 13 of 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Since the passage is long, we just want to read the first little bit. We'll go from there. If you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Kings write under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, Do you come peacefully? He said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, Speak. And he said, You know that the kingdom was mine, that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was, from, it was his from the Lord. Now I have one request to make to you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, Speak. He said, Please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And he said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah your brother as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and all his side are Abiathar the priest, Joab the son of Zeriah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if this word does not, come, does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. My father, I ask as we come to this text, it's not an easy text. And it's a strange place to start a series on a hero of the Bible. Yeah, here we are. We believe that all your, uh, every word of Scripture is true and given by inspiration for our benefit and good. So, Lord, we ask you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet. We would receive your word, believe your word, apply your word, and be transformed by your word. And let us see in every word of it the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And may I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. May you see it in I'm not going to lie to you, this is a difficult text to get through, particularly to start a new series. Usually you start a new series, you want something uplifting and good, and you read this chapter, and it reads just like what we just read. Four people are punished by Solomon. I mean, it's, it's not a pretty story. It's not a happy story. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of, of, of justice carried out by the new king of Israel. But as we contemplate the beginning of Solomon's reign, it may be most helpful actually to look forward to the end of his reign. At the end of his reign, Solomon wrote one of the most influential books, I think, in history. Actually, probably the best philosophical work in history. And that is, of course, the book of Ecclesiastes. 
In Ecclesiastes, Solomon declared, there is nothing new under the sun. Now we read that and we say, of course there's new things under the sun. We have technology now that Solomon didn't have then. We have medical advancements now that Solomon didn't have then. There's been all kinds of new things under the sun. In fact, I bet if I went to your house, there are literally things under the sun that didn't exist in Solomon's day. But that's not what Solomon means. What he means is that when you get to the heart of humanity, you can change the technology, you can update the culture, you can change the philosophy and the system and the medicine and everything else, but there is really nothing different from us today and our ancestors even a thousand years ago. One of the things that you'll find about humanity is we are good at changing the external. Think about it. It is a warm day today, and yet we sit comfortably inside the sanctuary. We can change our external. What we can't change or haven't been able to figure out how to change is the internal. What we need is someone to come from the outside who understand us to truly transform the inside. And what we see in this ugly text is the ugliness of humanity, not just of the ancient world, but of our world. Just to catch you up with where uh, the writer of 1 Kings has been in chapter 1, the issue is that of succession, who will follow King David. In chapter 2, the issue is of security. In fact, if, if you want to see what is the whole point of this text, right? our goal is not to, is, is to put something in the text, but actually to apply what is already there. Look at verse 12. We didn't read it, but, but it's the end of the story of David. Verse 12, so Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father. So there you see the succession. Read the rest of verse 12. And his kingdom was firmly established. Now, go to the end of the chapter, verse 46, and notice what it says there at the end of verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. You'll notice that the story opens with emphasis on the security of Solomon's kingdom. It ends with emphasis on the security of Solomon's kingdom. This is what scholars call an inclusio. That is, that the writer puts something at the beginning and the end so that you know that everything in the middle is ultimately about these two things. We look at something similar in our study of Psalm 23 on Wednesday nights, right? Psalm 23 begins with the Lord. It ends with, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that inclusio tells you everything in between in Psalm 23 is about the Lord who is my shepherd. Same thing here. So let us look at these four characters, what happens to them, and see what we can discover in the end. First of all, we meet Adonijah. Now, Adonijah is a significant figure in the opening chapters of 1 Kings. He is the crown prince of David. And by that I mean he is the oldest surviving heir of David. The oldest son of David was Absalom, who who uh, warred against David only to die in battle, which meant the next son is now presumably the heir to the throne of David. This is typical throughout all of human history. To give you a, a, a historical example of this outside of the Bible, when Henry VII of England um, uh, was king, he had two sons. The first son was a man by the name of Arthur. He was going to be King Arthur, literally. The problem with Arthur is he married Catherine of Aragon of Spain and shortly thereafter died, which meant the crown prince was no longer Arthur but his younger brother, Henry VIII. Right? So we would expect when Absalom dies, Adonijah be, is, he becomes king. However, that's not what we read in the text. God did not appoint Adonijah king, but he appointed Solomon. In the Jewish monarchy, God chose the king, not biology. 
In the 18th century, uh, 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 Thomas Paine, in his book Common Sense, made a kind of common sense point. Isn't it weird that we choose our leader, the oldest son of our leader, who was chosen because he was the oldest son of the previous leader? He was chosen because he happened to be the oldest son of that leader? It's kind of strange, isn't it? You won't find that in the Bible. It was Isaac over Ishmael. It was Jacob over Esau. It was Joseph over his brothers. It was David over his brothers. Now we see the same thing with Solomon over his older brothers. Regardless, what we see what Adonijah does in chapter 1 is that he declares war, essentially. He crowns himself king while David is still alive. And so what we get in chapter 1 is this this face-off, Adonijah over here, and then David crowns Solomon king, and one of them will win out in the end. Eventually, because Solomon is appointed by David, Solomon is understood to be the king. Now, we would expect in the ancient world, when Adonijah returns to Jerusalem, what's Solomon, the new king, going to do? Off with his head. That's what we expect. A king cannot handle any rival to his throne. But what Solomon does is actually show him mercy. He basically says, if you cause me no issues, I'll leave you alone. You have access to, to, to the palace. You, you, you have all this wealth and this influence, all of this. The problem is, it's not good enough for Adonijah. He comes through Bathsheba to speak to the king, and he asks for uh, the hand in marriage to a woman by the name of Abishag. Now, who is that? Well, She's not just any ordinary maiden. You can go back to chapter 1 and we meet Abishag. And she is the concubine appointed to keep the frail, weak David warm as he was dying. This means that she's not just any concubine. She's among the chief of the concubines. Now, you know, you're thinking, I don't care about any of this, but you should. Because in the ancient world, anyone who possessed the king's concubines possessed his household and his throne. You see what Adonijah is doing? He's wanting a greater claim on the throne of David. So he can say, not only am I the crown prince, but Solomon took it from me, but I am married to my father's concubine. So you can see then why Solomon, when this request is made to him, he doesn't say, well, let me think about it. He knows exactly what Adonijah is asking for. And he says, look, this guy will not stop trying to take my throne, a throne given to me by God himself, the same God that gave my father his throne. I have no other choice but to execute him. So we meet this character named Beniah, who will be the one carrying out the king's justice over and over again. And so Solomon has his own brother executed. Move on down to verse 26. We meet Abiathar. Abiathar is a guy that we, we've met, if you go back to our story of David, quite a bit. In 1 Kings 22, King Saul is chasing after David. And he comes to a place called Nob. And there he slaughters all the priests of Nob. One survives. And the priest that survives is this Abiathar. Abiathar uh, escapes and goes to David and is loyal to David until his dying breath. The problem with Abiathar is, before David dies, he goes over with Adonijah and helps him declare himself king. Abiathar gives the impression God has appointed Adonijah, which calls into question the voice and the will of God. So what does Solomon do, just to look at it real quickly, is he shows him initially mercy. He says, you can't be priest anymore. 
but you can live your life. You can go back to the work that your father had done, but I will not punish you. You just can't be priests. And so Solomon has to exile him. We then meet in verse 28, a man by the name of Joab. Now, Joab, we've again met him before. Joab was an influential figure in the story of David. In fact, it is Joab who is leading David's army when David decided to stay home and commit adultery with Bathsheba. Joab is the guy winning the battle. Now, Joab is a very competent man. He's a great general. The problem is he's a very violent man. And he goes beyond what orders he, he is given. And as a result, he's a man with many murders on his hand. In fact, at one point, David demotes Joab because he can't get a hold of Joab. Joab is too wild and loose, and so he demotes him. What Joab does is he grabs a sword, goes uptown, chases down a guy on the run, and holds an entire city hostage until that guy is beheaded and thrown over the wall. It's a violent story. We looked at it last year. It's a violent, violent story. And that's Joab. And so... Eventually, what we see is that on David's deathbed, he tells Solomon, you have to deal with this guy. Look up, look up at verse 6 of chapter 2. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let Joab's gray head go down to the grave in peace. David says, look, you've you got to deal with this guy. He's a loose cannon. And Solomon was patient enough, but the time came when he was going to have to deal with Joab. Joab flees to a place he thinks is safe, but Solomon has condemned him to die. Benaiah is sent. He is dragged away from the altar of the Lord, where he is then executed. Finally, verses 36 to 46, we meet Shimei. Shimei, rather. In verse 36 to 46, he is the last man to meet his doom under Solomon in this chapter. Now, we need to make clear this is not happening all in one day. This is taking years. The author is taking all these stories and putting them in, in, in one narrative for us. Now, David has shown kindness to Shimei. Now, what Shimei had did was when David was run out of town by his son Absalom, Shimei stood over there, threw rocks at the fleeing king, sent curses over him and blamed him for everything bad that ever happened. I'm so glad that politics isn't like that today. I mean, if Shimei had a Twitter account, can you imagine the things that he would throw out on there? Nevertheless, David was patient and kind towards Shimei, but in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, Now therefore do not hold him, Shimei, guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to shield to the grave. So David's already warned him about this guy. He's not a good guy. And you're going to have to uh, deal with him. He will be a threat to your rule. So what does Solomon do? Shows him mercy. We've seen this pattern with Solomon, right? He does what is wise. He shows him mercy. It's a new kingdom, new administration in town. If you get your act straight and you're not a threat to me or my kingdom, then everything will be okay. And so his rule is, you can't go back to the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you remember, King Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. That's part of the issue. You're going to stay here in Jerusalem where I can keep an eye on you. Here's the thing. You're under house arrest. Do not pass the Kidron Valley. You do that, I'm going to have you executed. Years go by. And Shimei is living his best life now until two of his slaves run away. Shimei has a choice. He can risk his life 
where he can risk losing his slaves. He chooses to risk his life. He crosses the Kidron Valley. He chases them down and brings them back. When he arrives home, there's Benaiah waiting with justice. All he had to do was stay home. And nothing bad would have happened to him. So Benaiah comes with a sword and executes the man. And so we read verse 46 again. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Go home and be blessed, right? Right? I mean, you, you come and just think, man, this is rough. This is just a rough, rough text to get through, isn't it? The temptation is for us to read this text and to think, I'm so glad we don't live in such a violent, bloody, crazy world. And it's easy to do until you walk outside, isn't it? There is nothing new under the sun. The characters we meet here are thriving in our culture today. And in fact, I think one of the healthy things we could do is look into a mirror both as individuals, because we'll find ourselves here, but also as a culture, because we're certainly there too. Look at Adonijah. Adonijah is a man who has a lust for power. You need to understand that this lust for power is not... It is, that it is the end goal. That is, that usually we think of power as the means. When Theodore Roosevelt was growing up, he really looked up to his father, who died at a rather young age. But he looked up to his father, and, and his father was this wealthy philanthropist who really believed that if he just, he, he just helped people, the world would be a better place. Theodore came through, and he realized my father was wise and passionate about good things. The problem is just throwing money at things and, and, and being generous is good, but it's not good enough. What Theodore Roosevelt wanted was the power to see to it these things wouldn't stay problems. He could fix them with government and influence. See, there we see that power is the means to an end. That is not what Adonijah wants. Adonijah wants power to be the end. He wants the power. He wants the influence. He wants the throne because he wants it. He wants everyone under him and no one above him. As a result, when we have that attitude, we will use, abuse, and run over everyone in our way. Just the very fact that the way we've told our story demonstrates this. We, we look at this, this, this concubine and we think, oh, it's just a concubine, a bunch of men fighting over a concubine. That's the problem. We don't see her as an image bearer of God worthy of far more than that. Adonijah isn't marrying for love. He's marrying for power. And a, 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 a she is the means to that end. Bathsheba becomes the means to that end. Solomon becomes the means to that end. And all of those people are standing in his way. Boy, I'm glad that's not a problem today, aren't you? One of the things I've noticed is that power is the end of everything in our culture. The more godless we become, the more idolatrous we become, and the chief idol is that of power. We use, we abuse, and we run over people to get our way. Think about our three primary idols, that of, of, of intimacy, uh, that of politics, and that of entertainments. What we've done is we have turned politics into entertainment. We have politicized sexuality, and we've turned entertainment into um, um, sexuality. Have you noticed that? 
When's the last time you watched a, princi- a presidential debate where they actually debated ideas and policy? Rather, it was a way to get a 10-second soundbite on, on TikTok. It's entertainment. It's must-watch TV. This is what we care about. And how we have sexualized or how we have politicized the bedroom. Why? Because, because it's everything. And these are the means to the end of power. Whether you're on the right or you're on the left, what we want is the other people destroyed. The other people put in their place. Us to be mighty and great power. Here we have a lust of power. Or consider Abiathar, a lust for influence. Notice what he does is he, he corrupts the faith of Yahweh for influence with who he hopes is the next king. He corrupts the faith for political influence. Now, if anyone needs to look at one of these characters, perhaps Abiathar is the most practical one. I think Abiathar should be a warning to American evangelicals. When religion becomes corrupt by politics, it will easily become polluted by politics. And politics stains everything it touches. Everything it touches. Because the end of the political game is the power. It's to institute whatever it is you think needs to be instituted. Politicizing the gospel turns believers in the gospel into nothing more than a voting block. You have got to see this. When you are a voting block, you lose your prophetic voice. Where are our John the Baptists? Where are our Nathans and Elijahs? And Micaiah's. Where are they? Well, they've already decided who they're voting for in 2024. And they'll be out there campaigning, sharing their memes on Facebook, and they've lost their political voice. See, what happens is when we, are, we turn into a voting block of a party or a partisan, then we are unable to speak or condemn that party or partisan. Why? Because they've got us. And so we justify their evil. We justify their corruption because it's our corruption. It's, it's, it's okay because they're doing what we want them to do. And so we lose our prophetic moral voice. The politicized religion will always fail to promote justice, truth, and righteousness because it takes into account how it affects their power and their party over such truth. Or look at Joab. He is the lust for control. Here is someone who sees violence as the means to an end. In the, the show West Wing, uh, President Bartlett uh, tells uh, his, his deputy chief of staff, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who want to be the man, and there are those who want to be the man that the man depends on. Joab is the guy who wants to be the man the man depends on. And so he, he goes around and, and he, he wants to be in control of things, control of the army, influential with, with the king. He wants to do all of this. And so he will turn to violence to get what he wants. Well, that is us, isn't it? We are increasingly, the more godless we become, justifying violence as the means of our self-righteousness. Look to the left, look to the right. There's violence everywhere you look. Why? Well, they have insurance. Let it burn. They didn't hear our vote, so let us storm the place. We're justifying violence. And then we look at Christ, and we forget where he says, almost like he's talking to Joab's, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. 
And here is Christ who conquered the power of the sword by being raised from the dead. Or finally, look at Shimei, a lust for more. Here is a man who his greed for wealth and property cost him his life. One of the things I have found is that Americans would rather talk about their bedroom than their bank accounts. We love money. Studies are showing that graduating high schoolers, if you look back 50 years ago, their number one priority in life was to be married and start a family. Number one priority. Number one priority now, make a lot of money. It's the American dream. We are advertised up to our eyeballs every single day, overwhelmed with buy this, get that, this will fix your life. We are like Shimei. Like Shimei. Think about it. As a result of all of this, the gospel becomes easily polluted. How many people in our churches will change churches rather than change parties? Or would they rather uh, change uh, their partisanship over because of the church? Or would they leave a church over financial issues or greed or whatever rather than surrender to that of the gospel? I do think we read this text and we realize there is nothing new under the sun. It looks barbaric until we turn on the evening news. We realize we're just as barbaric today. You know what sticks out to me? When, when David was given his final instructions to his son, he kept saying, you're wise, you're wise. And we have no reason in the story arc of so far to know if Solomon is a wise king. We don't know that. It isn't until chapter 3 that we discover he's received divine wisdom from the Lord. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. But what the writer does, and I think this is brilliant, is he, he gives us the hint Solomon might be a wise king. That's what David says. But we don't know if he's going to be a wise king. So what does he do? The writer surrounds Solomon with a bunch of foolish men. Look at their stories. Every single one of them are fools. Adonijah, he was shown mercy. And what does he do? He does the one thing that will result in his end. Leave the girl alone. Just get along. Stop pursuing something that isn't yours. You have no right to it. Instead, he wouldn't surrender that lust. Look at Abiathar, trusted by the king, and no doubt would have been trusted by Solomon if he had just stuck to his calling that God had given him. But instead, that lust for influence was too much. What's a little compromise here? What's a little adding to my job title there? Look how influential I can become. And as a result, he proved to be a fool. Or look at Joab. All he had to do was what the king had asked him. Instead, he had to be the man. He had to take control. He had to be the center of everything. He had to be the most powerful. He had to be the most competent. He had to be the best. So he made one foolish vow after another. Or look at Shimei. Another fool. His slaves run away. What is he doing with slaves? Just stay inside. Stay on your property. And you can live happily ever after. Yet he's a fool. All four of these men 
are high-quality, competent men whom the king relied on. Yet their foolishness led to their destruction. There is nothing wise about choosing the way of the world. And we have to choose the kingdom of men or the kingdom of God. And that really is, I think, the, the main point of this text. We read this about the establishment of Solomon's reign, but, but it's, it's, it's really about the establishment of Jesus' reign. See, one of the purposes of First and Second Kings is to show how God protected the throne of David. There were constant series of attacks, both externally and internally, and this chapter certainly shows that. And Solomon must first address those internal threats to his throne in order to protect the, the, the line of David. And so he must deal with issues of the corruption of power and religion. He must address issues of violence and greed. All of them threaten the peaceful rule of the son of David. But you keep reading, despite all of his wisdom, the problem with Solomon is he's no savior. All the wisdom in the world is no savior. And so he dies and the next king comes. He dies and the next king comes. He dies and the next king comes. And what you see is mankind hasn't changed an inch. Until one day, one stands up claiming to bring an eternal kingdom greater than that of David. And he claims at the same time to be wiser than Solomon. He brings a kingdom that no one can take away. And what's interesting, when you read the story of Jesus... You'll meet Adonijah. He's in figures like Pilate, who cares more about power than justice. You'll meet um, Abiathars, we call them the Sanhedrin, who have corrupted the religion of Yahweh for influence. You'll meet Joabs, who choose violence over peace. Their names are like Herod. Or James and John who want to call down fire from heaven. Peter who takes his knife to, to try to cut off a head and only gets an ear. You meet them everywhere in the New Testament. You'll meet, of course, Shimeis. People like Judas who want every penny that they can grasp for themselves. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't corrupt the gospel. He doesn't change the gospel. He doesn't play the games of men. He stands before them with a prophetic voice. And they think they gain the victory. At best, they barely bruised his heel. At his resurrection, we see the kingdom of God is forever firmly established. We do not need to fear, let alone become like Adonijah. We do not need to fear, let alone become like Abiathar. We do not need to fear or become like Joab. We do not need to fear or become like Shimei. The world has always had these men. We have Christ whose kingdom is forever established. And no one and nothing will stop it. Right now in China, there's a certain house church they have declared to be illegal. And all the tithe money are considered illegal gotten gain. And they are coming to arrest, perhaps kill, those believers. 
In Nigeria, dozens of believers, minding their own business, mowed down by governmental radicals. Right now, around the world are Christians who they know today could be their last day. Despite all of that, the kingdom of God keeps advancing. And here come us Americans. And we're afraid a political party might forget us. We're afraid a media mogul might not like us. Don't you see? God's kingdom is firmly established. No one, not Adonijah, not Abiathar, not Joab, not Shimei, not the devil himself will stop it. Let us march with a message that no one can stop. Christ has come. Christ has died for our sins. Christ is risen from the dead. And he shall come to rule the nations. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be kind as to look at what is a difficult text for a modern American.